Hello and welcome to The Shift, the weekly podcast for nurses and midwives proudly presented by the NSW NMA. I'm your host, Katrina Lee, and welcome to episode three. Today we have another fantastic speaker from the professional day of the NSW NMA's 70th annual conference. Associate Professor Adam Elshorg is an internationally recognised researcher and policy advisor. He has expertise in defining and measuring low-value care. He talks on the podcast today about health system sustainability and opportunity cost. So without further ado, here is Associate Professor Adam Elshaw. So thank you very much, Norman. I I should say uh, the title of today's conference is Illuminating the Hidden Issues. Um, Norman invited me onto his radio program 10 years ago when I was doing my PhD in this very area. So certainly he had some foresight um, of what was then a very hidden issue. Now that's actually an explosion around the whole notion of low value care and inappropriateness in healthcare. Um, I should point out uh, not only my my research support that I receive, but also some of the advisory roles that I participate in. Um, I am a ministerial appointee to the MBS Reviews Task Force that has just been announced by the Health Minister. Uh, And as you can see through the list there, um, I have an advisory role with a number of groups, not only in Australia, but around the world as well. Um, Today's presentation, I'm going to talk a little bit about this idea of health system sustainability. Uh, It's almost every day now you pick up the newspaper or watch the news and you hear these dire messages of an unsustainable healthcare system. Um, And I think we should unpack that a little bit uh, and we'll try and do so today and I'll talk about this notion of opportunity cost and what it means um, uh, in real terms, uh, not only within the healthcare system but more broadly for society. And then if we start to think about what is waste in healthcare or what is low value care, Um, I'll run through some definitions that have been proposed, some examples, and then some of the remedial activities that are happening around the world um, in this area. We'll talk a little bit about Choosing Wisely, but before we do, can I have a show of hands? Who's heard of the Choosing Wisely campaign? Hands up, nice and tall. Okay, good. Not very many people. (laughs) That helps me. So when I sort of introduce this concept of of sustainability and waste within the system, I always like to think that, uh, you know, since Plato, we're all just plagiarising. Very little of what we say these days hasn't been said before, but um, I like to point out this very neat little concept known as the tragedy of the commons, which I think speaks to the idea of sustainability quite nicely. The tragedy of the commons was actually an ecological observation that happened in ye olde English times where an ecologist noticed that there was a pasture, a common, a common pasture, a common paddock, that people from all around would bring their cattle to graze on this common pasture. And the observation was made that individuals acting independently and rationally according to each um, of their own self-interest actually behave contrary to the whole group's long-term best interests by depleting some common resource. And that is that the common, the paddock, was being depleted by overuse even though every individual farmer was acting quite rationally for themselves. And then in the 1970s, that same notion was actually applied to the healthcare system. And that is that each little incremental part of um, use within the healthcare system is actually quite rational by the users and by the providers of the services, but sometimes taken in total, it can actually be a depletion of that common, which is our healthcare system. And I'll go on and talk about that in a bit more detail. 
This is, a, I guess, a reasonably famous graph now from the Commonwealth Fund in the United States, uh, where I spent some time. This is looking at healthcare expenditure around the world by uh, a number of OECD countries, Australia included. Um, so you can see the years across the bottom and uh, either dollars or, or percentage of GDP spend um, up on the vertical axes. Australia is the black line and it's actually hard to see in there on some of them because uh, it's actually right in the middle and we sit about in the middle or the average point within the, within the OECD. The purple line at the top is the United States. So you can see that they're spending about twice as much uh, on healthcare as most other countries within the OECD. And this, I think, is actually very interesting because when we think about sustainability, I like to say, well, a, just a, a, a blanket statement about an unsustainable health system actually ignores this United States experience, which reveals, actually, that we could be spending twice as much on our healthcare as the United States is, and is that unsustainable? What is the point of unsustainability? Uh, is it a 10% GDP? Is it a 15% GDP? Is it 20% GDP? The US is pushing 20% GDP and it's still going on this trajectory. So it ignores this idea that actually within our health budgets there's this notion of elasticity. There is no natural tipping point for when something is sustainable versus unsustainable. And often the conversations focus on how much we're spending and not what we're getting back for our dollars spent. And just as a side point, the United States is actually ranked very low in terms of its health outcomes on an international basis. So it's overspending and it's under-delivering quite, quite dramatically. Whereas some of the other countries like Australia actually are very cost-effective in how they allocate their resources. But also when we think about what we spend in healthcare, it actually distracts from the bigger picture conversations and questions that we have about how we want to spend our money, not just in health, but in all, all areas of the economy and all areas of society. So this again from the Commonwealth Fund. So David Squires there did this, little, this neat little analysis where he said, what if the US could have saved all of the dollars that it spent on healthcare and actually compared to the next highest spending country, which was Switzerland? This is dated up to 2010. And what they found was, well, they could have transformed their $11.6 trillion federal debt into a $3.9 trillion surplus. They could have sent 175 million students to do a four-year college degree with the difference. Or well, my personal favour is they could have bought everyone in the world four iPads. <laughs> it's striking. It's a $15.5 trillion difference over that time period. I mean, there's so many zeros there that I can hardly fathom that. Um, but the point is, What's that extra investment delivering? That's the funny side of opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is when you spend something in one way, those dollars are foregone, and the next best use of those resources cannot be utilised. This is the not-so-funny side of opportunity cost, and this is real. So what we're looking at here is a jurisdiction, a health jurisdiction, population of over 5 million people, less than 8 million people. The blue bars are their resource allocations, or the dollars spent in fiscal year 2001. The orange bars are the fiscal outlays for financial year 2011. And on the left-hand side there, you can see that in healthcare, there was a rapid increase, a dramatic increase in how much they had to spend in healthcare in this population. Those dollars had to come from somewhere. And all of the other charts you see, or the other bars that you see across the spectrum there, are all of the decreases in budget allocations. 
in order to feed this beast that is the healthcare system. This is real. I find this profound. And it's always hard for me as someone who teaches students and others this notion of opportunity cost because we can all think about it on a day-to-day -day basis in our household budgets and the like. But this really, I think, drives home this idea that, you know, these were teachers that were sacked. These are police officers that were sacked to feed healthcare. So who wants to guess? What's the jurisdiction here? You've got to yell out. New South Wales. Do we have a counter bid? Singapore. I think Queensland was up there as well. It's Massachusetts. It's the government of Massachusetts, which now spends uh, over 40% of its state budget on health. But you might want to consider what your own state looks like in this regard and what the growth has been like. Now, again, I'm going to say increasing the expenditure is one thing. If you're actually buying more things and good things and you're spending your money efficiently and effectively, that may not be a bad thing because it's a cost-effective allocation. But what I focus on in my work is the waste. We're actually spending money that is not delivering good outcomes for patients and may actually be harming patients. And for me, it adds insult to injury. And we're talking about inappropriate tests or treatments, excessive service intensity or sophistication relative to expected benefit, excessive frequency of tests relative to expected benefit, that kind of thing. We're going to give you some examples. This is a famous graph from Don Berwick uh, out of the United States where he posited that 30% of what we spend in healthcare is wasted. I actually don't think that figure has ever been very rigorously tested, but I think conceptually it's a very good uh, graph to look at. Um, and you can see there that on the right-hand side, there's all kinds of categories. I focus mostly my work in the over-treatment side of things, uh, in the pricing failure side of things, and sometimes in the failure of care delivery and administrative complexity and the like. And it's also worth noting that um, members of the general population notice as well that there is waste within the healthcare system. This was a survey done by the Commonwealth Fund where they asked members of the general public in the last two years, has a doctor recommended a treatment you thought had little or no benefit? And the Australian response was 17%, which I think is conservative. I think actually now if this was repeated, it would actually be higher now that there's a bit more recognition of this issue internationally. So in Australia, we have our Medicare benefit schedule. Um, we have 5,700 items on the MBS, not including pharmaceuticals. The majority of these are long-standing, including how their fees were derived. Not many people know this, but Australia's thought of as a bit of a gold standard leader in the area of evidence-based medicine and health technology assessment, and yet only about 3% of those items have ever been formally assessed against contemporary notions of safety, effectiveness, and cost-effectiveness. So we're not saying necessarily that 97% of the items are ineffective or unsafe, but we just don't know. And with the huge churn of new research evidence that's coming along every day, we're actually finding out some things we thought were effective are actually not as effective as they were once thought to be and may even be harming patients. And there's different categories of this. So there can be no evidence at all. And you'd be surprised how many practices we do out there where there's actually no good evidence um, of whether or not it's effective or safe or cost-effective. There can be evidence of ineffectiveness. So new trials come along, new good RCTs are published that demonstrate something is ineffective, like I say. Most often, though, it's rare that there is something where it's actually ineffective for everybody. Most often, it's this idea of indication creep. So we know that there's a group of patients who are going to benefit but actually it's being used on patients who we know are not going to benefit from it. There can be relative ineffectiveness um, over a comparator. There can be inappropriate frequency, so we're not necessarily questioning 
the effectiveness of a test or a treatment, but we're saying it might be being applied too often. It can sometimes be the right care, but in the wrong, at the wrong price, so we're paying the wrong price for it. Sometimes it's operator-dependent, so it actually has nothing to do with the technology. It's just the person or the hands that it happens to be in at the time that renders it ineffective or unsafe or inappropriate. So let's define this a little bit better. I like to use this uh, typology from Skinner and Chandra. They have categories one, two, and three. Uh, on the vertical axis, they use um, quality benefits, but you can think of that as any kind of health benefit that you like. And across the bottom, you have procedure quantity, which you can think about as patients. So um, the category one, is actually suggesting that actually from day one, from patient one, most patients who receive a practice are going to get good benefit from it. And they're good. They're the ones that we're happy with and we want in our healthcare system. On the other side of the equation, you have the category three, or the low value, which is essentially saying that from day one, patient one, the gain is very low and the harm actually could be quite high. But as I had mentioned to you, most often what we find is there is this middle category where you have a group of patients who will benefit quite highly from a given intervention, a group who will not benefit at all, and you have this huge grey zone in the middle where we just don't know. Um, and this is where most of the research and policy work is focusing um, these days. It's in this category too. So only a few years ago, the big questions when I would give these presentations, people would say, well, where are they? What are all these practices that are low value? Um, and this is work I published in the Medical Journal of Australia in 2012, where we, we looked at over 150 items on the MBS that are potentially low value. But of course, since then, there are now countless numbers of lists out there of services that are thought to be of low value. NICE has its do not do recommendations. Um, other academics like Vinay Prasad have published their own lists in, in medical journals as well. Um, I looked at a procedure known as vertebroplasty. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this procedure. Um, it was occurring in Australia under interim funding mechanism through Medicare. It was also occurring in the United States. Um, and I did this analysis and published it. Uh, essentially, two uh, randomised controlled trials were published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009, one by Professor Bookbinder in Melbourne demonstrating that vertebroplasty actually delivers no additional benefit over conservative management and, in fact, is harming some patients. Australia removed vertebroplasty from the Medicare benefit schedule. It's the first item to be removed purely on effectiveness grounds, not safety grounds. The United States, on the other hand, continues to do about 90,000 procedures per year, um, despite this evidence. So that's an example of something that is actually universally considered to be low value. But this work is uh, now starting to divide up the green, grey and red zones, if you like. Al-Khatib and co-workers looked at um, the implantation of automatic implantable cardiac defibrillators in Florida and found that 22.5% of them were actually non-evidence-based insertions. Hannon did this work in New York State looking at the diagnostic catheterization database. They found that only 35% of those procedures could be considered appropriate. 25% were inappropriate and there's a huge grey zone of 40% where they just can't tell because of the data whether or not they're appropriate or inappropriate. There's lots of people shaking their head. Um, but think about where you work. What might the numbers look like? Um, this is the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons. This is uh, looking at the management of full thickness rotator cuff uh, tears. Only 16% of these practices were considered appropriate in an order that was done 53% were considered to be inappropriate. Total knee arthroplasty, 
Now, this is not questioning the prosthesis that was inserted. This is just saying whether or not patients were actually good candidates for surgery in the first place. They could determine that 49% were appropriate, 34% were inappropriate, before we even get into a debate about the, the prosthesis that they received. And I talk about this power of the grey zone, um, and I actually think this is important. Over the years that I've been presenting on this issue, it has been quite divisive at times because Quite rightly, I think, some clinicians have thought this idea of appropriateness in healthcare or low-value healthcare was actually a very binary discussion and that they were being forced into a position of actually either practicing appropriately or inappropriately. But what we're knowing now is that there is actually this grey zone that is quite legitimate um, and it's hard for patients and doctors and everyone to know whether it's appropriate or not, partly because there's not the right data or the evidence base isn't there. So that's actually been quite an empowering notion, this idea that there are questions that are, are yet to be answered within some of these areas. We published this work in JAMA Internal Medicine um, just last year where we looked in the US uh, Medicare database, um, 26 low-value practices and we looked at how often they were occurring and, and, and how much it was costing the system. We found that 42% of US Medicare beneficiaries received at least one of those low-value practices in, in the year of analysis that we looked at and costing up to $8.5 billion per annum for just the 26 practices there. So obviously this is an issue. This is a growing issue internationally um, and it's one that's really hit its straps very recently in terms of the media and certainly in policy circles and the like. And thankfully, I think the clinical community has taken this issue on by the horns. Um, I always like to talk about this vitamin D example. Um, I did some work with the Ontario Ministry of Health. They had this crazy graph where vitamin D testing out in GP land was going through the roof. And what they discovered was that on the GP ordering software, there was just a box, a tick box. The GPs were just ticking. They removed that box from the GP ordering software. They also went and did some clinical detailing with the medical community. And in two years, they managed to get their utilisation down quite dramatically in Ontario, saving uh, $60 million per annum. And there's an entire program happening uh, in Canada in this area where they're now approaching $1 billion annually in terms of the savings that they're, that they're recouping just by reducing practices down to levels that are considered appropriate. And they're reinvesting those dollars elsewhere within the healthcare system to areas that they know are going to improve um, practice. This is a, a shot, uh, I'm drawing your attention here to a newspaper article. If you look at the blue advertisement in the middle, um, the government there has been incredibly proactive around raising awareness of this idea of inappropriate use and unnecessary care. Um, it's been quite impressive, I think. So I wrote a piece for the Australian Financial Review. Um, I guess I was becoming a little bit frustrated in Australia as well. Uh, we had the same problem with vitamin D testing. There was a 4,800% increase in vitamin D testing over a 10-year period. From, we went from spending $3 million a year to $145 million a year on this test, again out in GP land. So, in November of last year, the Medicare benefit schedule and the, the team there in Canberra made some tweaks to the item number, they made some tweaks to the price that was paid for it, with a view to try and better target the patient groups who we actually know need vitamin D testing and at the right frequency, because remember, no one's saying that vitamin D testing isn't important, but we want to get those frequencies right and we want to make sure we're targeting the, the most appropriate patients. And 
an analysis that I had my PhD students do just recently has shown that there has actually been a reduction in volumes since November. And if that stays on track, it's looking like it might save over $600 million over the next five years of just one blood test. Just one blood test. So what would you like to do with $600 million? Any takers? More nurses. Quite right. Quite right. That is the entire point of this presentation. This is not detracting away from patient care in the slightest. We want people to get vitamin D tests, but we want the right people to get them at the right intensity or the right frequency. We don't want the over-servicing because $600 million, you know, has just enough zeros on it to make it substantial in terms of what it could deliver within the healthcare system or anywhere within our economy. So to Choosing Wisely, Choosing Wisely is a campaign that uh, commenced out of the United States um, back in 2009, in fact, it started, and the idea there was to spark discussion about the need, or lack thereof, for many frequently ordered tests and treatments. Pretty simple, huh? The main objective is one of improved safety and quality via reduction in practices that are at best of little or no clinical utility and at worst harmful. So in 2009, this was actually led by three specialty groups who volunteered. They came forward and said to the ABIM Foundation, we want to develop top five lists of things within our own specialty area that we think are being overused and are harming patients, wasting dollars and so on. They wanted to make it a conversation with patients. Costs were not explicitly considered, although we all know that there is going to be some cost payoff sometimes, not always. In fact, sometimes doing the right thing might cost more money, um, but often, often there is a payoff. So from 2009, fast forward to 2012, and this became a formal campaign in the United States. And by that stage, they had nine specialty societies on board. And at that point, Consumer Reports came on board, which is a very large group in the United States. People liken it to our choice, but it's not really like our choice. It's a group that's designated purely for engaging conversations with consumers. Um, by 2014 and now 2015, there's over 50 specialty societies in the United States who have joined the effort, and now there's over 250 healthcare practices that have been put forward as top five low-value care or inappropriate care services. So we're at a nursing conference, so I thought I'd show you. These are the American Academy of Nursing lists of do-not-dos. I'm going to give you a second to read through them. Are they relevant in Australia? Ask yourself. I'm seeing some no's. That's the next. There's 10 of them, actually, that the American Academy of Nursing have put forward. If I've gone too quickly, tell me, and I'll go backwards. But, uh, I'm seeing a yes. yes. Something there. Which one? Sorry, which one? First one. Second one. All right, now we're getting some rubber on the road. I agree. The first list, I almost fell asleep on the first list. They were, I didn't think there was anything of... I love the chatter. I love that chatter. I know there's some... Uh, this is the continuation. Okay. 
Second one. Okay, I know we've got some midwives in the room. So this is the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. Sorry, if you, they're a little small, but I'll give you a second to read those as well. This is a different society. This is not the Academy of Nursing. This is the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. What's the feeling out there? I can't gauge it. Mm. You do it all the time. Gutsy, gutsy call. So I should point out as you're reading them, some of the lists in the US came under quite a bit of fire because they were thought to be really low impact and the people were like, really? Of all of the things you could have nominated, you nominated that? A couple of reasons behind that. Some people thought, well, you know, if we don't participate in this campaign, then we're going to look like we don't care, so let's just give them something. And it's... Some of them actually, though, were a little bit more thoughtful and they thought, well, sure, it may not be the highest impact thing you can think, but it's something that we can control on a day-to-day -day basis, so we're going to put it in the list. As opposed to something that actually might require complete system redesign or system change or something like that. And this is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. There were five of them. I've just picked out the two that I think you might find more interesting. Yes. All right. Anyone want to have a contrary opinion? No. Okay. So this is... This is Choosing Wisely. Choosing Wisely is now international, so Canada was the next country to pick up. They've now got, I think, 20 or so groups who have reported lists. Nothing from nursing, interestingly. Um, they're all very medically focused. Uh, Australia has just rolled out Choosing Wisely. I sit on the advisory group for, for Choosing Wisely. You can see, again, I'm, I apologise it's small, but on the bottom of that Screenshot, you can see that the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine, Australasian Society for Clinical Immunology and Allergy, Royal Australian New Zealand College of Radiologists, the College of General Practitioners and the College of Pathologists were the first five groups to roll out their lists. So you can go to the website and see what they've listed. Um, NPS, who's the facilitator of Choosing Wisely Australia, is actually now in talks with the Australian College of Nursing and the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association Incorporated. Who here is a member of one or both of these organisations? Hands up. Okay, so you're going to be getting a survey in your inbox at some point, saying, are you interested in participating? What might you nominate? And so on. Um, Norman, if we have time, I'd be interested if they could, you want to come up with a top five here and now, potentially. The other thing I'll say about this is you'll notice that many of them are very clinically focused in terms of direct patient care. We wrote a paper in the Medical Journal of Australia where we actually suggested that, you know what, there's an awful lot of waste that happens on the administrative process side of things as well. Um, and we've encouraged people who are thinking about these lists to perhaps develop two top fives, one of clinical practices, one of process waste and administrative waste. Um, and that's actually something that could be put back on the hospital managers and the like to actually try and improve the systems of care that you operate within. So this movement is happening um, and 
together with Choosing Wisely and the MBS Reviews Task Force, the RACP has its own program called Evolve. I'm involved with Cancer Australia, who is developing their own oncology-based Choosing Wisely type campaign. There's a real movement here. So I guess I'm just going to finish by saying, please become involved, um, because uh, there's no doubt that the, the real gems in terms of the low-value care and the waste come from the front line, um, the front line people like yourselves. Um, it's always been the number one source of, of items where there can be the greatest level of improvement. So on that note, I say thank you and hand it back to Norman. Thanks. So that was Adam Elshorg, and you can get a link to his presentation slides through the podcast or visit nswnma.asn.au. Thanks again for listening today and don't forget you can send any questions or feedback you may have to the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au. On the next episode of The Shift, we'll have Associate Professor Thomas Gottlieb talking about antibiotic resistance. So see you then. Yeah.